just write. Writers write. Looking for the devil in the details. There's no devil in the details. This is you and me. Hi, and welcome back to Music at Three Pines, the podcast. My name is Brad Rayleigh, and for this episode, I sat down with Peter Mulvey. Actually, this is really part two, as I edited part of our conversation for my political podcast, Estate Sale. I will include a link to that episode. Peter is a fantastic guitar player with a voice that absolutely grabs your attention. We first saw him in Norman many years ago and have run into him over the years. As I said in my political podcast, if you get a chance to see him live, I would take it. Folk music is all about stories, and Peter might be as good at that part as anyone around. We started our conversation about being a musician in a pandemic and then continued our previous conversation on political music. We meander around a lot of topics, but also explore Peter's musical influences, his approach to songwriting, and then some of his favorite musicians. Peter Mulvey. Well, how you doing, man? How's that? How are, how are things? I know I, I just noticed, you know, you've been doing a lot of live streaming stuff, some benefit stuff. You've been, uh, you got the, the Kickstarter. You've been yeah. really active. Yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot of um, folk singers are probably experiencing this, but, uh, you know, my income has probably declined, you know, considerably, but my overhead has declined entirely, like, uh, and so in a weird way, I'm actually probably doing a little bit better financially in the short term, or to put it another way, if you went to a business school, and you said, you know, uh, it, you know, some second year business major would say to you, well, what do you do? Oh, well, I, you know, I'm a songwriter. It's so intellectual property. And what's your business model? And I'd say, well, you know, I fly to Denver and then I play uh, four successive nights in rooms to about, you know, from 40 to 90 people renting cars and staying in, in hotels. And then I fly home. He would look at you, I think, and say, what? why? What? <laughs> what are you doing? So... Yeah, I mean, utterly weirdly, I think it's more of an emotional loss. Mm. You know, I, I mean, I never did it for money to begin with. So, like, it, it's sort of almost, you know, it's a relief to discover that the pandemic has not hurt me badly financially. I'm sure my audience has really sort of stepped up and joined a Patreon that I put up and they've ordered my new record that, you know, I mean... All of that has been a relief, but it's also really pointed out to me why I did what I did and how much mm. I want to get back to it. Like mm. I would like to get back to hemorrhaging money into so that I could bring this to people in rooms because that's the whole reason I do this. Peter and I spent quite a bit of time talking about politics. As I said, that is in my political podcast called The State Sale, and the episode is titled Protest Songs and Other Musings. There I asked Peter about the stay in your lane or shut up and sing comments from some fans, and his response was simply, no thank you. Here, we continue some of that discussion. 
Yeah. I, by the way, I, I really do appreciate and I love the fact that you're just like, because uh, there is just a very overt honesty to you. And Mark Arelli said the same thing. He said, I'm not going to lie to my, you know, he said, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to be dishonest to my fans, you know, uh, and that's, that, that just is that, that to me would be, be far worse. But I also was thinking, by the way, and Mark made this point too, when you're talking about the people who all of a sudden discover that you're a liberal somehow and not a, uh, a gun toting conservative, how the, you know, how the right uh, responded to, to born in the USA, you know, you had right. Ronald Reagan uh, blaring that song as if it was not a, a overt political protest song. Uh, yeah. and all these people listening to it, just, you know, just as, as assuming somehow that it meant something, the exact opposite of what, what the song meant, you know? Yeah. A friend of mine just did something yesterday. Um, I have, I'm going to look this up because sure. this was absolutely brilliant. So he is a high school English teacher and he posted. Um, Mark had to look something up during our podcast interview too. So you're in good. Company. Oh, good, good. <laughs> so a friend of mine, he's a high school English teacher. He posted a photograph of the Trump family and then he posted this quote. They were careless people, Tom and Daisy. They smashed up things and creatures and then retreated back into their money or their vast carelessness or whatever it was that kept them together and let other people clean up the mess that they had made. And that's F. Scott Fitzgerald from yeah, The Great yeah, Gatsby. Gatsby. Yeah. What is art for? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. what is art for? And, uh, you know, it's a difficult needle to thread, but I think that I was more elliptical earlier and I've just decided to be blunter now. Hmm. And I think in the end, all you can do is just work on your art and put it out there. And, you know, you're going to miss people. You're just going to miss yeah. people. Uh, uh, Tom Morello, somebody actually, again, the internet is so useful for revealing this. Somebody said, whoa, whoa, man, like I dig your music, but you know, why don't you, uh, why don't you stop with the leftist politics? And his response was brilliant. He said, can I just ask what machine you thought I was raging against? Like the copy machine, the frozen yogurt machine. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's well, and one of the things, you know, when I started this, the music podcast, I, 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 for the most part, it's kind of a refuge from talking about politics, but I was also thinking as I was doing this, cause most of the music I listen to is, is folk Americana, you know, a uh, good country, that kind of stuff. And I thought, good God, it's always been political. It's always been connected in, uh, you yep. know, so this is not lighthearted pop music where we just, you know, act like, the world is just about meeting girls. It's, this is, this is something else. I was yeah. just dismissive of pop music there. I understand, but I'm okay with that. That's fine. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> just the old Bob Newhart thing about um, country music. Do you remember this? Like mm. um, I don't mean to denigrate uh, country music. And for those of you who listen to country music, denigrate means to, <laughs> you know, which is funny in its day, but I'm deeply encouraged by the whole Sturgill Simpson and, and on and on like yeah. country, country music has been 
I mean, the Dixie Chicks and on, yes. on and Willie Nelson just stepping yes. up. And, Jason know, Isbell. Pretty, Jason Isbell right. is is a force. And, and, and Amanda Shires is amazing. I mean, just some right. amazing musicians. Gretchen Peters, you know. Right. Um, it's yeah. pretty much Ted Nugent and Kid Rock. Like that. <laughs> like that. Like, like all other artists and then Ted Nugent right. and Kid Rock. And, yeah. and all of the derivative white blues dudes. Yes. Like that is the demographic that is sort of Trumpist on uh, social media. It's like just sort of blues casting derivative white macho dudes. <laughs> you guys sound terrible. I'm just going to say. It. <laughs> All right. So, you know, I've, I've got to talk to you a few times and uh, your guitar playing is just mesmerizing and amazing. Um, Thank you. Um, and I know that you, I, I was reading your bio and I know you started playing when you were, uh, you know, younger um, and, you know, in Ireland is where you really started busking and getting out yeah. there. I don't think you've ever explained exactly how you figured out how to play this, all this stuff outside of standard tuning and, um, you know, that when did you start doing that stuff? Almost immediately, like in my teen years. And um, basically what happened was that I, like I came up listening to uh, the police and pr prog rock like Rush and Yes and, 
you know, all, and and also sort of a, a, a public enemy and Prince. And so there was, you know, my my influence was not the acoustic guitar. I think this is just blind luck. I grew up listening to sort of very rhythmic music, uh, both sort of nerdy and non-nerdy. And then I, all that while I was playing the guitar, and then I got lucky enough that when I was about 18 or 19, I saw Michael Hedges. Mm. And so he had all the unorthodox tunings. And I think I was just smart enough to realize that I could kind of get the effect of a bass player and a drummer and all that stuff together mm. if I took the guitar and warped it. Like Michael Hedges warped the guitar into what he needed it to be in order to be a composer. I did it because I wanted to sort of have the uh, the sort of impact of a bass player and a guitar player and maybe even a drummer, you know. And so then I was playing, uh, you know, I was playing I, with a college band and it was great when I had the whole band with me. But then when I would play solo, you know, because you graduate college and everyone goes their own damn ways and gets a damn job. I, you know, I kind of had that arsenal and that vocabulary. So it really is sort of the through line between... Prince and mm. Prince and Rush and, and Michael Hedges and Michael Hedges. Like you take that playground influence, run it through Michael Hedges, and that that was the thing. But then, luckily, right after that was when I got into the songwriters. I got like way into Greg Brown, um, and I got way into you know Dylan. I went through a short little Dylan phase and Joni Mitchell with all her alternate tunings. And then right after that, I got into the like super artistic bohemian types, like, like, like a lot of the weird jazz guys and Los Lobos who are like, they, they remain like the most underrated American band. Like they, they've created this, this pinnacle art form. That's like part conjunto, part R and B part blues, two parts rock and roll and then like one part sort of esoterica bohemian poetic uh you know straight up like weird little beat poet you know universe so they invented this art form and then they play as though they are the best of all the bands that play this art form but they're the only band the only that plays this, you know? yeah thought about there was uh alejandro escovedo i don't know if you uh I mean, oh God, yeah, that you know, guy. Uh, but not quite the bohemian side, right? I mean, but it seems like he did some of that of pulling in kind of, I mean, there's yes. a Tejano sound. There's also just straight up rock and roll punk kind of, you know, just an interesting, interesting dude. And, right. And then like austere sort of string quartet stuff. Right. You know? Right. Right. And then you just and like as a guitar player, everything should always shape you. You know, like I made a record with Chuck Prophet. I made eight records with David Goodrich as a producer. And so that was a huge influence on me. But once I had my feet under me, like I did, I made one record with Chuck Prophet, one record with Ani DeFranco, one record with uh, Todd Sikafus, and one record with Sista Strings. And uh, I think it's worth mentioning that my influences keep getting younger. <laughs> you know? like, yeah. like my producers began older than me. And then Every one of them has been successfully younger, successively younger than the last producer and younger than me. And so now, like, my main influence is a 29-year-old and a 31-year-old. Like, right, you know? right. Yeah, which, which is cool, by the way. One of the things that I, I love about this music 
and about the people that I, I follow and get to see and hear and talk to is that they're never sitting still. They're always innovating. And that's certainly uh, you. And uh, by the way, I have to say, I was just talking to Haley Reardon. Oh, God. Yeah. She's, she's, my, she's my latest client. Actually, I'll be booking for her when she when she gets back oh, from sweet. Germany next next fall. But I love Haley to death. And she just we were talking in a podcast and she was talking about opening for you one time and just how encouraging you were. And just, you know, uh, so anyway, I just that I'm just a vuncular presence if ever there was one. Yeah, exactly. Well, I know, you know, Megan Burt has talked about, you know, you being very supportive. Obviously, Daniel Anderson uh, just, you know, so uh, I, I, I appreciate your, you know, supporting musicians, but also the fact that you're not just looking at them as uh, uh, I've got to figure it figured out. Let me tell you how to do it. You're looking at these people and saying, hey, hey, that's cool. I like what oh, you're yeah. doing there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like I, I if you're not learning from people younger than you you might want to check your pulse because you might be dead you know uh john stotts i just did a whole run with him last summer on the trains and everything yeah i love uh, him um ross belenois that guy's an amazing writer and guitar player and uh i just did a whole tour in germany with him my last tour maybe ever (laughs) right right Uh, one of the things we've never talked about is songwriting Um, so i'm kind of curious your approach it strikes me as i start talking to people that Everybody has kind of a mixed, I mean, it's often all over the place, but, um, you know, some people are straight. They start with lyrics. Some people start with a guitar riff or a a melody, a chord progression, something. Some people are doing both at the same time. Sometimes it varies. Sometimes it's coming from an inspirational point, like what you talked about, about take down, take down the flag. Um, Sometimes it's just it's, it's the muse. It's there. It's something that needs to be said. I'm, I'm kind of curious. Do you have kind of a, when you're writing, when you're in your, is it a regular thing? Is it a dedicated thing where you're sitting down with a guitar and that's what you're going to do? Or is it? I, yeah, I go listen. through seasons, you know, um, I go through seasons. The best thing I ever did was in about 2010 or 11. Again, learning from someone younger than you, Jenna Linbo. Do you know her? Hmm. She's a young singer and songwriter. Uh, she's not on the scene, you know, as authoritatively as she was. She was making a go of it back in 2010, 11. And she opened a show for me in Asheville, North Carolina. And, you know, she's one of those, she's a really, Shannon Bo is one of those people who like has a high squeaky voice and like um, is hyper sincere and says things like you know blessings when she when she says hi to you and so as an entertainer it's beautiful because she does her opening set and it's just her unbelievably cheerful self and you get to go on stage and be like wow wasn't she a drag you know (laughs) and and, um after the gig she she comes up to me and she goes hey listen I have this friend and he and I do this thing where we once in a while, we'll just write a song a day for a week and exchange them back and forth. And like, he can't do it uh, because this week, but I'm wondering if you would do that with me next week. I shook my head. No. And I said, I'd love to, (laughs) what did I just say? And like, I wrote seven songs, I think in seven days and four of them wound up on the next record I made. And this, so this was maybe 2012. And like, I had just given an interview for some record that had come out. And I had said to myself, I had said to the interview, they said, what's your process like? And I said, well, I tend to write just in little bursts every year and a half, you know, 
And, uh, you know, I feel like it takes time for all the thoughts to accumulate and et cetera. And I, I realized as I was saying it, I was like, says who? Like, why does that have to be the way I do this crap? I just wrote seven songs in seven days and four of them were okay. And so I set up a little group with some friends of mine. And for a good two, two and a half years, we wrote one song every Tuesday. We just write a song every Tuesday. And I think that's the biggest window into songwriting that I can give anyone who's listening is like, there isn't any method. There isn't any writer's block. There isn't any, there's nothing, just, just write, writers write. You know, Ani DeFranco actually can say it even better. I remember listening to an interview with her in a car. Uh, I'm driving along in my car, listening to her on the radio. And the interviewer asked this, you know, sort of well-framed question. He said, if you could only keep one of your songs, if all the rest of them had to be consigned to oblivion, which song would you keep? And Ani said, none of them. I'll write more, whatever. Wow. (laughs) Right. And I stopped the car and got out of the car and gave her a standing ovation. Like, like that's it. Like songwriting is not, is not a fully conscious process and there's no need to access it via conscious means. Do you know, like, let me put it to you this way. If you show up every Tuesday for two years and sit down at the writing desk, either you are teaching the muse that you'll be there for her, or you're teaching your subconscious that they, you want it to go to work for you all through Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Or, well, the question doesn't need to be answered right? Mm. Just do it. One more and then I'll stop. But God, I love when someone nails it. Uh, uh, JT Nero from Birds of Chicago. He just called me up one day and he said, hey, you know that feeling you have when you're really writing a good one and it feels like it's being beamed in from somewhere otherworldly than you, right? You know that feeling? And I said, yes, you know, of course I know that feeling. He said, what if it's false? Like, what if this is just your subconscious and there is no otherworldly thing? And like this light bulb went off in my head, which was, who cares? Like, there's no need to answer that question. Do it. Deadlines are so useful. You know, like, it is perfectly valid to write some songs because you know you're going into the recording studio. Sure, that's a good motivation. Like, that's fine. I mean, Shakespeare's motivations, as near as we can tell, were largely financial. Right. Because the minute he bought his title, he he quit. He was like, okay, well, you know, uh, A Winter's Tale, and I can now afford to become Sir William Shakespeare or whatever. I I know it wasn't a, a, it was a peerage or whatever the hell he was trying to buy. But he quit. He quit. He was like, well, that's good enough for me. (laughs) And, you know, is he any less of a genius? No, he is not. You know, Uh, can I ask you, by the way, in terms of because I I, you probably don't even know how many songs you've written, do you? Oh, God, no. I I mean, it's up there in the two, three, four hundred of which I probably am only really happy with, like, you know, some of the latest 60 and then like uh, a dozen of the 200 that went before that. Does that make sense? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
But what I'm curious about, when you look back at those early songs or say something you wrote last year or two years ago, um, do you have, uh, are there some of those songs that maybe never made an album that are still kind of percolating out and you'll tweak them, you'll change them, you'll edit them or, or once they've been written and kind of are finished, they are their own thing and you have to do something completely different. Um, I will say that once a song is done, it's usually done. Every once in a while, I'll take an old lyric and put it to a new rhythm and all of a sudden it, it becomes alive, but it feels more like pottery where the clay's wet and then the clay dries. Which is, you know, I'm, I'm now going to immediately contradict that because my clay is always perpetually semi-wet because I never play the song quite the same way right. uh, as a performer. But that's different, yeah. you know, like the melody is the melody. And then I improvise on the melody. What, yeah. So and then the other thing that I'll say is I, I feel like, I, I, yes, your first hundred songs are going to suck, but everyone that I've ever met who's very good at this somewhere in the first like 10 songs you write, there'll be like three of them or sometimes only one where you're like, wow, yeah, wow. You know, and it's usually some 19 year old, you know, and it's just great. I remember teaching a songwriting workshop uh, once it was just a two hour thing in a town and this elderly lady was part of the workshop. And I said, Oh, so you're a songwriter. She said, no, no, I'm just retired. And I take workshops, you know? And so we're, we're, you know, we just, I said, well, I don't know. Do you have any songs? And she said, no. And then she went, wait, I do have a song. I was on a cruise about six years ago. And like my, my roommate on the cruise said, would you look at the moonlight on the Mississippi? And I thought that sounds like an old song. And I played a little piano. So I wrote this little song and she played this like perfect little AABA gem of a, of a pop standard about falling in love and moonlight on the Mississippi. And I was like, you're shitting me. Like, you know, <laughs> like I just turned to the rest of the class and I said, all right, we can all be depressed now. <laughs> this lady has written one song and it's fine. Like, yeah, it, it's almost like. And again, it doesn't matter whether this is true or not, but it's almost as though the, the sort of Tin Pan Alley thing of the 20s, 30s and 40s, that all those songwriters walked through a field and picked all the ears of corn. And then in like 2009, she went on a cruise and happened to walk through that same spiritual cornfield and be like, oh, look, there's this one ear left. This perfect. Yes. Perfect ear of corn. This is this has been so much fun talking to musicians because it does feel like there's just no. Uh, this is why this is art. This is why this is what we love. Is that there's no mathematical equation here. There, it's yes. it's just. Uh, you know, I realized I was playing my last show of the of the of the year because it's getting too cold to play outdoors, right. and I'm willing. I am unwilling to endanger my audience by playing indoors or asking them to be indoors. Right. And it suddenly dawned on me, like the last song I played this year for people face to face was Shenandoah, was the old, you know, which is a Titanic tune. And it dawned on me that, and I said it to the audience, I love America. I love American democracy. And it's one of the few things that I have fallen in love with that I'm just still in love with. Like if you're lucky, you might fall in love with a person and remain in love with them. Uh, in you know in, and fall in and out of love with them I have that with a person I have that with music and I have that with an American democracy the American democracy 
And the common thread in all three things is that they are not written. That's the point of music. Like it's just, it can't be pinned down. It won't, it will just be there. It'll be there for you if you're willing to be open to possibility. That's true of music. It's true of democracy. And it's, you know, it's true of human relation. And it's why I do not have any time for the purists. You know, like the jazz snobs who are like, well, this is jazz and this isn't jazz. I don't have time to listen to you because jazz is about possibility. And the constitutional originalists, again, I do not have time to listen to you. And someone who says, well, our agreement as, as a relationship is sort of set in stone and that's how it's going to be. I don't have time for that. Like possibility is the common thread in things that are alive. Take that. You know, that's, that's lovely. Uh, American exceptionalism is a great example of that. I've always thought, cause I, I taught for years and uh, it always seemed like American exceptionalism was just uh, ridiculous. And yet, you know, I think it was Herbert Crowley, Crowley that, that wrote the, the promise of American life back in the progressive period. You know, if, if American exceptionalism was aspirational, that's an awesome thing. Let's be the best we can be. You know, it's yes. not, but when it's, when it's where we peaked in 1776 or whatever, that's when you realize those people need to be, they need to shut the fuck up. Exactly. <laughs> right. It's, I, I, I mean, does anybody here, I think it is more than a quarter of physicians were born out of American physicians were born in other countries than the United States. In other words, you know, in the horror that we are living through where a quarter million people have died, what that means is that a million Americans have been messed up, like scarred lungs, you know, degraded hearts and, and comas and, another way to look at it is three quarters of a million lives have been saved Yes. by who, by the future. Yep. You know, if we were originalists about the constitution, they're not even allowed to be citizens, let alone save our damn lives. Yes. Yes. <laughs> no, that's lovely. Okay, man, I've got three final questions for you. All right. This is how I've been finishing my music podcast. I, I really it. appreciate your time, by the way. Um, Thank you. It's been lovely to chat with you. Yeah, it's been great. Okay, so the first question and is, and I understand this is a flawed question, 
sure, they're sure. all flawed. They're all flawed questions. But is who is the songwriter that makes your jaw drop? Oh, I'm gonna say most consistently. Yeah, I mean it's a real inside answer, but Tom Waits. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, Although among my peers, I would say Anais Mitchell, Mm. you know, like she, she is the one who just decided, you know, I'm going to go and find the deepest levers that I can find. And I'm going to start yanking on them and see what it does to the human psyche. The second question, which you may have answered when you were talking about some of your musical influences, but I've been curious asking people the music they listen to, and maybe it's good to ask about it now, the stuff you're listening to. Is there stuff that you're listening to that's outside of your genre? And I understand those labels are limiting, but if you're listening to people that are really doing stuff differently than you, um, is there a genre or an artist who makes you, maybe that you feel like it, it changes how you approach rhythm or, or lyric or hook or, or any of that? Yeah. Kendrick Lamar. Oh, okay. You know, I got, I got super deep into just one of his records to pimp a butterfly. Yeah. I feel like I'm going to be working out the impact that that had on me forever. Like part of it was just, you know, obviously he's speaking so eloquently as an American to another American. So mm-hmm. like that really was useful to me to, for him to, you know, do that so forcefully and interesting like, I have no idea what his agenda was. I think his agenda was just to tell the truth. But, like, To Pimp a Butterfly is a direct lyrical uh, uh, steal from To Kill a Mockingbird, right? Like, uh, you can't say the one without being reminded of the other. And, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird is a beautiful bit of art. But in some ways, it's also a f- an abject fantasy about the way things really are, you know, like, yep, agreed. <laughs> so, yeah, that like that record. I know that record and I know every inch of that record. OK, one more. And this started as a in, uh, I, I can almost sense you saying, fuck off. This is a terrible <laughs> question. Um No, it it actually is a terrible question, but it's been kind of fun. It started as asking people if they had a guilty pleasure. And then I realized it's ridiculous to ask people to feel guilty about music that they like. But the idea is, I mean, is there, and maybe Kendrick Lamar might be this, not, not in any way guilty, but somebody that you listen to that your fans might actually be surprised that you listen to. Yeah. Well, a, a few now. So like, um, like I love David Byrne. And especially his sort of more strident and annoying stuff. And um, I love Dan Reeder. And I think most of my folk audience would be, you know, Pussy Titty, for example, I think is a spectacular bit of genius. Um, And uh, uh, but I think, you know, most of my fans would find him somewhat offensive. Um, What else? Okay, so Dan Reeder, uh, David Byrne, uh, Juana Molina, have you heard her? She's an Argentinian. She, it's marvelous, but it's avant-garde, like some of it's out of tune. I listen to a lot of stuff pe- that is hard to listen to, like uh, Steve Reich, uh, music for 17 musicians, like stuff that is, I've had friends of mine, I've been on road trips and put it on and have friends of mine be like, can, 
can we just not listen to this? This is really, this hurts, you know? Um, and then here's a guilty displeasure. I don't know if you've heard uh, Zero Tolerance for Silence by uh, Pat Metheny. No. But that record, even I cannot listen to that record. I threw it out wow. the window of my car. It is, um, it, it made me physically nauseated. So, wow. yeah, try it sometime. Oh. You'll, you'll <laughs> here, here, taste this. It tastes awful. <laughs> you know? It's an interesting thing because most of the time when you talk to music, music fans, especially casual music fans, the idea of listening to something that's not an easy listen or is it difficult is not something that they're used to being exposed to, you know, that, right. which, you know, yeah, they should absolutely. Be. well, I, I just, you know, I've, I've loved seeing you every time we've seen you, you know, it feels you. like we've uh, run into you multiple times. It's always been fun. Uh, I love listening to you. I've one of the, I didn't even talk about your voice. I still remember when I heard you at soundcheck in Norman, not only did you have your guitar perfectly set up and the sound, you know, well, we had a good sound guy there in Norman, but uh, you, your, your voice is, is just fantastic. It's, it's, it's Thank just you. a, it's a great voice. It's a pleasure to listen to. And so, um, thank you. And, uh, yeah, you're but, very good at this. this well, is- thank you. I appreciate that. And I, I, it's just been so much fun for me. It's just been, been a pleasure and, and it's great talking to people about music. And, and of course you're pretty well versed in a lot of things. So talking about history and, and politics is also uh, great fun as well. So uh, it'd be more fun if we were in a, in a more, uh, good political scene, but I will Amen. take this. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. You can find links in the podcast details and hope that you will find ways to support musicians and artists during this hard time. We need our poets and truth tellers now more than ever. See you next time on Music at Three Pines, the podcast. I know everyone's a good dog under these three pines.